Someone in the chat wants to know what would G do? What would Genevieve do? Hey. Hi. Hey, uh, everybody. Hey. hey, everybody. Sorry we're late tonight. We've had um, all the technical issues. That's the beauty of a live show. You just, it can become a shit show. And, <laughs> and it did. Hello, Andrew. Hello. How's it going? Well, welcome. And we're so glad to have you with us tonight. It's an honor. I'm thrilled to be here. Good. And Genevieve, you've been uh, running late all day, right? Yeah, yeah. No, uh, as you can tell, I'm not um, in my house. Um, I am actually in a rural cabin on the border of Virginia and West Virginia. I'm on a work retreat. I work part time for a distillery. And so we have this retreat. And so we were just doing all of these different tours at this barrel making facility and a distillery. And it's, it was like 40 minutes away. I'm like, it's six o'clock. I gotta go. So we're have here. you been have you been sampling the wares, Genevieve, on your distillery you know, tour? I have, <laughs> um, but not nearly as much as last night. I I, I drank responsibly. Okay. Um, and I just had I just had one cocktail, so it's not hopefully going to be any more of a mess than it already is with our card event. <laughs> well, we've uh, we're running late. We got a lot to get to tonight. We got questions already. Two calls in the queue. We got. Uh, questions for our distinguished guests but first of all i want to thank you for tuning in hit the like and subscribe button i'm contractually obligated to say that i think um if you can become a patreon supporter we appreciate that the super chats should be on again tonight as they were last week they kind of went crazy last week we appreciate your support however you do it it does cost money to run the show but um, thank you for being here. What's that number they can call in, Genevieve? They can call. Oh, my gosh. I took it down on my notes because we don't have our overlay. It's 217-375-9933. Please give us a call. It would be great to talk to you. Yeah. Call in. Join the conversation. But without further ado, Andrew, I just want to hear. Um, we're going to talk tonight about uh, various forms of Christianity. Um progressive, evangelical. I came out just, to, I don't know how much you know about me. I came out of the evangelical tribe, fundamentalist. The Bible is literal word of God, inerrant, um, inspired, all those things. Is that how you grew up? Yeah, I, I would say that um, Appalachia is a weird place. And that's where I was born and raised. It's East Tennessee. Woo. East Tennessee. So um, people think that Appalachia is Southern. It, it, it is. It's in the South. But it is a fundamentally different culture um, right. because like if you are a southern person that moves to Appalachia, you are considered an outsider. Like so it's a different world altogether. So I would say mm -hmm. I was raised evangelical adjacent or 
um, in kind of like a very low church setting. Um, we knew snake handlers. We weren't them though. Like it was, it, it was a different world. We knew people that made moonshine. We didn't though. Like it was just a very, how did you view the snake handlers? For instance, did you think they were like one step over the line, like too far out there? Yeah. So Yes, I'm, I'm sure we can get into this more. I, I come from a movement called the Stone Campbell movement is what I was raised in. It's it's mm. basically, it is the most vanilla version of fundamentalist you can find. Like, it's just very, I wouldn't say the least problematic. That's not true. But um, it doesn't have a lot of the um, more extravagant things that we normally point to as problematic mm -hmm. in evangelical mm -hmm. spaces. So we would look at like those groups as well as other charismatic groups as like, the strange ones we would look at people that were in like these big mega church settings as the strange ones um but when we would gather in our small southern country church once or twice a week that mm -hmm. was considered our normal i see you know when i was younger i didn't see the problem yeah. in that until i got until i got further on and noticed when i had ideas that didn't line up but you you your your tribe believed the bible was the word of god and you had a personal relationship with Jesus and those kind of things, right? All those crossovers that we're used to seeing from classic evangelical and fundamentalist churches, absolutely. Mm -hmm. A lot of those were very, very similar. And so from there to now, describe your journey in one paragraph, the elevator pitch. Yeah. Who, are, who is Andrew and how did you get here? Yeah, that's, that's, that's something. I just okay, okay. before you say anything, Andrew, I just want to preface this with that. Okay. You know, I don't think you can can condense who you are into one paragraph. I don't think anybody can, but I think especially for you. I mean, you, you know, you are a Christian and you are one of my favorite people in the entire universe. I didn't get the chance oh, to say that when wow. we were backstage because I didn't get any backstage <laughs> time. But, you know, you're you know, you inspire me every day. You are a wonderful human being. And I, if I tried to describe you in three sentences, I could not do it. But please do, do your best. Well, I'm, first of all, yeah. I'm, I'm taken back and I'm, I'm very flattered. That's, how do you follow that, Andrew? Huh? I, 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 by disappointing everyone. That's how I follow that. Okay. okay. Um, I was raised in an Appalachian church setting, a fundamentalist church setting in East Tennessee, spent most of my life in East Tennessee. Uh, I discovered in my late teens, early 20s that I wasn't straight and worked very, very hard to deny that to myself. Mm -hmm. um, I became a Christian later in life because I wanted not a single thing to do with the church. Um, I ended up going to seminary, an academic seminary. Someone call it a liberal seminary um, where I learned about liberation theology and how the Bible has been used to give power to the poor as well as been used to oppress. Um, I actually worked in a white megachurch for quite a while. Most of my church experience is working in a white megachurch in East Tennessee. And um, now I would call myself a pro I, I call myself a progressive Christian only because that's the circle that I find myself most consistently in. I would say it's a wide net. Um, but if I had to pick words, it'd be mystic and liberationist. Christianity is what I find myself most at home with. Oh, and I love plants. I grow a lot of plants. <laughs> you do. Yeah, you can't you can't delve too far down your TikTok hole until you see that, right? That's beautiful. It doesn't take much. Yeah, yeah that's beautiful. Um, I did a little bit of a deep dive on your TikTok today. Um, just trying to get a feel for 
who you are and where you're coming from. Um, so when, when you hear the term progressive Christian, what does that mean to you? And you don't, you don't feel, I don't feel like you want to identify as that. Am I correct? I, I would say that I think it's important to grow where you're planted Mm -hmm. and that I have so much crossover in the same way the church movement I grew up with has so much crossover with classic fundamentalism. What I believe now has so much meaningful crossover with a lot of progressive Christians Mm -hmm. um, that I don't mind at all. The, the issue is that I was not raised in that structure. I was not developed in that structure, that structure being like a high church setting with like liturgy. I wasn't raised in that. Mm-hmm. I wasn't raised in really uh, top-down structured denominations, the way that United Methodists, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Anglicans, what have you, are. Um, so there's a lot of people that are part of the progressive Christian camp that have diametrically opposed life experiences of Christianity mm-hmm. to what I do. We just happen to have very similar beliefs. Now, yeah. around things like um, heaven, hell, salvation, uh, purpose of the church, I think, and um, how we should view the Bible. A lot of those things, I think we have a lot of crossover with. So mm-hmm. I don't mind the title. It just doesn't encapsulate what educated me to this point. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? It does. In fact, yeah. it, you know, if I could just add something too, is that I think that you were exactly right that there is a lot of this overlap with uh, some of those more progressive theologies that many people are born into. But when I personally, when I think about progressive Christianity, those people that you mentioned, the Episcopalians, et cetera, like, I don't think they consider themselves progressive Christians. They're just Christians because oftentimes they sort of grow up in an environment where like, that's what it means to be Christian. You know, I, I went to churches like that in California where it's, you know, oh yeah, of course we're Christian. And of course, like we are not homophobic. And of course, like we think all of that is wackadoo, but that's not Christianity. The only context in which I really see progressive Christianity used is sort of in this deconstruction space, in this Mm -hmm. space where people were sort of born, their roots are from this, you know, white American evangelical Christianity. And then they, they then decide, no, I'm a progressive Christian because I know what I'm sort of coming from and where I'm now taking my faith. Do either of you think that that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I think, and, and you and I talked briefly this afternoon, Andrew, and um, that's the problem when you label someone, whenever you attach mm-hmm. a label, whatever the label is, progressive Christian, fundamentalist, atheist, then you get the baggage that comes with that. Uh, I read a book by David Dark one time, who is a progressive Christian, and he said, as soon as you label me, you diminish me. And I think that's really true. Once we attach a label, then it it removes the um, nuance from who we are, the gray areas. So we have to be really careful for that, I think, and, and not attach too much significance to any particular label. Cause you know, I've, I've gotten in these conversations with someone who says like, as, cause I identify as an atheist and a humanist, <clears throat> but then they'll say something like, well, then what about Richard Dawkins? And, and, and what he said, mm-hmm. I'm not responsible for what Richard Dawkins said. He's not my leader. Uh, he, he's an atheist and I'm an atheist, but we don't share every thought. Yeah. It's like, you, are, you guys don't attend the same barbecues. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I, we, we got to be careful about labels. 
But um, as we have this conversation about cr progressive Christianity, fundamentalist Christianity, let's jump into a call and kind of um, this call, I think, might uh, kickstart the conversation. You guys good with that? I'm, let's I do it. Um, he actually called last week, Genevieve. He's from your hometown in Frederick. Oh, uh, yes, of course. So Bailey um, thinks liberal Christianity is as much of a threat as fundamentalist Christianity and wants to ask Andrew's thoughts. So I'm let's hoping, see. I'm hoping. Bailey, are you there? I'm, I'm on. There you I'm, are. I'm here. We got you now. I was in your entire. I was in your entire pregame setup, so that's okay. We've yeah, been running late. It's nice. been it's it's been crazy. You you got you got to hear you got to hear the backstage stuff. Pregame chatter it was <laughs> yeah. awesome. Yeah, you, well, you couldn't hear me because I kept saying, "Put me in Zoom jail. Put me in Zoom jail. I'm not supposed to hear this." So, um, Andrew, I mean so, Bailey, what what are your questions and thoughts for Andrew and me and Genevieve? Uh, I'm a my tribe, I think, was liberal Christians, and now Genevieve's got me wondering if we called ourselves that. I thought we did. I mean, we used terms like liberation theology, and um, you know, we knew of fundamentalists and evangelicals, who, of course, I imagine if you asked them what they called themselves, they would have just said, hey, we're Christians, <laughs> right? So, um, and I was always had just pity for the evangelicals and the fundamentalists because yeah. they had such a small view of we were ignorant. You can say it. They were just, they were just ignorant. <laughs> no, it was, well, the, one step you know, above flat earthers, right? Right. <laughs> are ignorant, but you know, I just, I, you know, they didn't have the, the rich view of, uh, of that I felt as a, Christian. well, there's, there's a certain close mindedness but, to the fund fundamentalism by definition is reducing. It's reducing, life and faith and theology and spirituality down to fundamentals, you know, and, and, and it removes the nuance. It removes the gray. And so there is a certain level of, of narrow mindedness, if you will, I, I think. Which, which is a, which is a special kind of stupid with Eastern religions. I was like, yeah. you know, what this religion, this Eastern mystical culture needs drastic reduction that's exactly <laughs> what we're like this just needs to be boiled down to whatever i think is just like like some cold rules that's exactly what this religion that comes from an eastern worldview needs exactly the grief i'm sorry go, go right ahead it was bailey so bailey what what is your uh why do you think hey, well, liberal christianity is as, is as much of a threat as fundamentalist christianity why do you think that it, it's not even hypothesis it's, it's barely a postulate right um and I'm not talking about threat. I'm talking about a existential threat to democracy is our tolerance for magical thinking. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's my question to you, Andrew, is that, you know, you believe in God, mm -hmm. you believe in a soul that's probably different from the mind that's different from the brain. And I, I just find those as unsupportable, wishful thinking. So isn't, <laughs> You know, five years up till like five years ago, I just thought the fundamentalists were harmless because what could they do? And now we have this top tier, Amy Coney Barrett in the Supreme Court and Pence as vice president. And oh my gosh, we are in so much trouble. And I had been expecting the liberal mainstream Christians to keep the fundies at bay. And that didn't happen. And now I'm really scared. And, um, but I, I, my hypothesis is that it's tolerance for magical thinking, belief in God belief in heaven, belief in a soul, 
um, that might be at the root of our situation. And at this point, I'll try and shut up. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I'd be happy to respond to that. This is going to take a, a direction that sounds unrelated, but I promise you it is. And because we're going to be talking about how um, power manifests in society for a moment. And, and one of the clearest mechanisms that we're used to as Americans, or, or that we should be at this point, goodness, I hope we are, is how racial dynamics have created certain power dynamics throughout the world. Now, we know, or we should at this point, because of like W.E.B. Du Bois, because of Ibram X. Kendi, because of Dr. Crystal Fleming, all these various thinkers, that the way that these systems of prejudice and systems of power around people groups came to exist first started with thoughtless policy and then was reinforced by rhetoric that demonized some and venerated others. Let me, I'll give you an example of what I mean. Um, when there was a need to create a more streamlined slave structure through Africa, there was a need to also diminish the, and this is going to sound very objectifying, but it was an objectifying industry. So just bear with me for a moment. They uh, needed to find a way to diminish um, both um, Latin Americans, you know, South American uh, slaves and Native American slaves as products and venerate African-Americans. And they created three racial stereotypes all at the exact same time. They created the stereotype of the strong African, of the uh, lazy drunkard Native American, and of the lazy slothful Latin American, all for the sake of a market ploy. That Now, this isn't something that is a debate at this point. This is a proven history. If you're interested mm -hmm. in looking at this on your own, you can either read it or you can listen to uh, Stand from the Beginning, A Comprehensive History of Race and Racist Ideas by Ibram X. Kendi on Spotify. It's still free. So why did I say that? That is how we have made use of rhetoric for the sake of power to diminish. We have done the exact same thing to venerate. One of the most powerful bases for voting historically in the United States has, and I think it will be less in the future, but has historically been Christians. And I don't necessarily think that people were praying the rosary or attending church when they decided to make Christians their target audience. I think they saw numbers. They saw a market plan. Mm -hmm. um, now, I'm not going where you're not where I'm not going is Christians are the real victims here for being manipulated. I'm not going in that direction. Just wanted to make that clear. But what I am saying is um, I think that whenever there is any people group that can be venerated for the sake of power being maintained or diminished for the sake of power being maintained, that will always happen. Now, granted, in this case, it has happened specifically with a religion that's been consistently used to hurt and manipulate in a, in a wide swath of terrible ways. Um, so I do not think the reason that people group was chosen for voting purposes had anything to do with magical thinking. I think it had to do with population density. That's the reason that whenever we see, and, and we can look at many different moments of history, I can drop some names and some dates if that will help, but um, I don't think that the problem in, in the sense for American democracy is necessarily any spirituality. It's whatever people group can be manipulated by veneration or degradation by the people of power to keep those in power, to have power, because that's how all constitutional government has always functioned. Mm -hmm. I think the question or the problem that Bailey is expressing, and I'm not putting put words in his mouth or that I might even have, is I, I kind of ascribe to the notion that John Lennon uh, gave us, imagine no religion. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like in my own my own expression of things coming out of fundamentalism, 
um, I didn't stop. I didn't, as I deconstructed that faith, I didn't stop at a nicer kind of faith or try to hang on to a nicer kind of God. I just came out and said, if the God of the Bible is, is not there, and I came to the conclusion that he wasn't, <clears throat> I don't really feel a need for any God or any religion. And I feel like that we, we'd be better as a society, as a world, as a species, if we didn't hold to ideas of a deity and um, an us or them kind of thinking. Because as soon as I... As soon as I label myself a Christian of whatever brand, then whoever is not that is now the other. Instead of me saying, I'm a human and so are you. So I would ask it this way. Wouldn't we be better off without any of the religious baggage, whether it's um, progressive, conservative, evangelical, whatever? What say you guys on that? Amen, brother. Oh, well, I'm preaching now. <laughs> uh, you see, you're, you're preaching. I, I totally see how Bailey agrees. And I, one of the reasons, Andrew, that I'm so excited to have you on, um, not just because, like I said, you're literally one of my favorite people. You're just an incredible human being. But I also find myself going back and forth about my feelings about progressive Christianity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that... I, I've, for the longest time, Dave, I agreed with you that the world would be a better place without any religion. Like if we could all just like recognize what is in front of us and what is falsifiable and move forward with the same understanding of reality, then we could communicate much better and maybe have a more cohesive society. But then at the same time, I think I realized that my problem wasn't necessarily with spirituality because, you know, I'm a loosely spiritual person in a way, not in the sense that I believe in something that is like magical or, or that I think that I have, I have a concrete belief that there is like a spirit in this room or like something outside of, of us. Like it's, it's really sort of just born of, of understanding my own emotions and getting in tune with those and saying like, Oh, mm -hmm. I have a deep caring for the universe around me. And so I am going to, put forward things that I think will make the world a better place and in hope that inspires others. It's, it's sort of, I mean, consciousness itself is not a concrete thing, even though it comes back to a physical thing, being our brain and our experiences and sort of like the, the pathway of society. But, but another thing too, is that many religions are, are intimately intertwined with culture. There are many cultures that can't be, separated from their religion or their beliefs. And not all of them are exclusive in the same way that Christianity often is because, and this is getting back to where I, I go back and forth about how I feel about progressive Christianity. Mm -hmm. It's that when you just read the Bible, it, from my perspective, it inherently creates an us first them. You're saved or you're not. You accept Jesus or you're damned. A, only a fool would deny this. And, and I wonder no matter, even with my friends, you know, like you, and even my friends who see, who read the Bible and see Jesus as this, you know, inspiration of radical social justice and change and acceptance and love. Um, in many other verses, I don't see that to be true. And I wonder yeah. if, if that sort of us versus them is something that's inherently baked into the theology that can be separated. 
And that I think is what is so dangerous. I think that is sort of getting back to Bailey, what you were saying is that anything that, that venerates another person and creates separate groups where groups should not be made is going to create a power imbalance. And it's going to lead to exclusionist belief. Hmm. I know that was long, but. No, that's, um, <laughs> that's true. And it, it's so it's, it's, it's interesting. There's like six different directions we can go with this. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll pick, I'll pick the, the, what yes. I think is the big one. <laughs> would, should, um, would the world, I'll, I'll say it like this. Tell me if this frames it in a helpful way. Can we say that the world would be better if magical thinking or spirituality or the practices or institutions of these spiritual structures went away? Um, my default answer would be no, it wouldn't be better, but not because of the spirituality, but how it's functioned within our societies for these people. Like, like, let me, let me objectify religion and just uh, not out of any kind of reverence for it, but just how it seems to function sociologically. Religion, at least, um, Abrahamic religion, definitely also other religions, but let's just stick to Abrahamic for a second. It gives uh, a historical mythology that ties people together from a central focal point. We come from this together. We share this together from where we come from. And we have stories that connect us to each other that aren't necessarily rooted in fact, but rooted in like this understanding of we come from a similar place. Mm -hmm. um, structures often based around um, harvest calendars and lunar calendars to gather people together for feasts and meals. Not unlike we could bring in hedge witches into this conversation as well and these structures that seem to really be good for uh, creating community. A hope for a way that things will be and that we will be taken care of. And this is where things get complicated with, I, I think, uh, Judaism and Christianity specifically, um, is that these structures, these writings were written by oppressed people who desired to be free. And now those texts are almost exclusively owned, speaking for Christians, by mm -hmm. oppressors. Mm -hmm. The people that would be opposed have their market stamp on the text, which is one of the biggest issues. Um, so there are a lot of things that religion gives that a naturalist world has yet to figure out to find an alternative for. So, uh, the, uh, the systems of hope that can come from practices of spirituality, the systems of health that can come from practices of spirituality, uh, gathering uh, expectation of gathering with people together in a way that we just simply do not always have outside of these religions. Now we can create them, but if we, if we snapped our fingers and they went away today, we would see a cultural destruction of a lot of people groups mm -hmm. just for the sake of not being, being just for the sake of being able to say, now we're not talking about magic anymore. I think what we need to do is catch up as society and how to practice these things that are, and be able to say that there are some things that are really beneficial in religion that kept people alive. How can we take those things with irreverence? Right. Right. And you, and, 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 copy them because we haven't figured out how to do that yet so i what i hear you saying and and bailey i i, I think you're still on the line aren't you i, I yeah. am and you oh. know that that, you know, that that gathering of well-meaning people coming together you know that, that brings a tear to my eye so that is what i miss from being in yeah, that's yeah the sources have a very human moment right now bailey yeah so okay brings a tear to your eye okay so there is a thing that this magical space provided you that you have yet to find elsewhere. Now, what's unfortunate is it required you to basically do a Apple terms and conditions, skip all the shit and just sign at the bottom. Yeah, I agree to everything here. Like, and you didn't, you don't want to do that anymore. Good for you. Um, mm -hmm. 
But what we have yet to do in a secular society, and we need to, we need to figure this out, is how can we provide that, if we don't want to say spiritual need, let's just say human need to gather an expectation, knowing people will show up, knowing we won't have a problem. Because we can't seem to pull that off with things like birthdays or bar visits, but we can with things like church structure. We need to figure out how to develop that exact same cohesion so sociologically. And we haven't figured out how to do that without religion yet. Well, I I think what the, the term I'm I'm hearing in my head is community. And yeah. The the atheist deconstructed Christians, the ex-Christian atheists that I have known for years now that are some of my closest friends. Um, the thing that I've heard over and over again when we leave the church is the miss it. We miss the community. We miss the right. the uh, fellowship, if you will, which right. is a, a triggering term for a lot of people. Of we're going to we're going to gather in the fellowship hall for a potluck. Um, but. That has been recreated in a lot of situations that I've found myself in. Wonderful. We had a we had a huge ex-Christian atheist group in Nashville that's still there, but I live in Charlotte now. And we gathered monthly for um, meetups and we gathered impromptu in different places. We we recreated the community element that we missed the most from church. And I think that's what we're looking for, and that's what you're mm -hmm. talking about that church does provide. Um you can, if you're a Baptist, for instance, you can move to any city in the country and immediately find your tribe. You right. just go to the Baptist church on X corner and immediately you've got a place to plug into. Right. And, and as non-religious people, there is a void there. Is that what kind of what you're saying, Andrew? That's exactly what I'm saying. And I think what you just pointed out to is what we could call good news. Um, the, there, there are these like cultural epicenters in states like like nashville it's in tennessee but it's practically a different country compared it to is state, yeah right? yeah so so like in nashville we you found that and so i can guess don't have evidence i can guess there's something similar in san fran and la i can guess that but you probably not in kingsport right probably not in kingsport <laughs> so like um so what that means is we're seeing an uptick of people exiting the trauma of religion enough that they can make use of some of the similar structures that were actually pretty good for us. But what we haven't figured out is how to do that consistently enough yet to say that we can replace religion. Right. Um, now <coughs> I'm operating for the sake of the conversation, like every spirituality and every magical practice and every religion is, is just some kind of gobbledygook, some kind of nonsense. And all we have is sociology here. Um, but even if that were the case, we haven't figured out how to replace religion enough for people to be healthy if it were to go away today hmm. mm -hmm. I, bailey as we uh continue this conversation i'm gonna let you go unless you've got any other questions or thoughts just so we can save a couple bucks well, on the just, phone call <laughs> yeah yeah just just one other thing with you know, okay. james Barron yesterday um saying he bleeped out the gd show and i'm like why would he do that it's the genevieve and dave show Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's so Thanks. great. Thanks for the call, Bailey. That's why we named it that. Mm -hmm. These these uh, heathens who go to the who automatically assume it's that goddamn show. No, it's, it's the Genevieve and Dave show. Worst, worst, I know. Worst opinions. <laughs> um, Genevieve, I'm sorry you were gonna. Oh, before you do, I want to thank Tu Tuin G uh, for a super chat from Mexico, I believe. Thank you for that. And Sarah Dye, I see you there. I think you said you had to leave. Thank you so much for your Super Chat donation. 
Genevieve, I'm sorry I interrupted you. What were you going to say, Donna? No, no, I was just going to say that, you know, Andrew, I think you're totally right in some senses that, that religion does oftentimes provide this necessary community structure more so than anything. It's bringing people together for something outside of themselves. A lot of churches do community service, which anybody, I mean, I can tell you from personal experience, and I can also tell you that, like, psychologically, we know that helping other people is so beneficial to us as individuals. Like, right. selfish altruism is is absolutely there because you feel so good when you're doing something for other people, and when you're and when you're sharing a community with like-minded people. I think that I I find it interesting that you say that you know we haven't found a way to do that without religion because like I have had that in my life um, ever since. I decided to live by my values and actually get out into the world and, and interact with things that I cared about. Um, you know, it was right around the time that I went vegan and I started, I was a volunteer for Bernie Sanders campaign and I helped in local politics and I started a food program and I did all of these things. And that, that was what brought me to a community where I had, I, I had basically what what people would consider church it's people that i could commiserate with and we we're helping the world together and sort of uniting over not like you know just proximity but just these shared ideals um but i also wonder is it possible that we haven't found a way to to really standardize that experience for other people a because nobody is monolithic and like what what speaks to me is not going to speak to somebody else um, but also at the same time, the way that that sort of life has been structured in this like hyper capitalistic environment, like our free time, our not centering ourselves, our individualism does not give way for everybody to freely, you know, center their lives around something outside of themselves. And sort of religion is just this thing that we've inherited. This idea of there is a God is something that it, it, it provides a service, but it, it doesn't do it because it's real. It doesn't do it because it's inherently important, but it's just sort of what we've done. And there is a way, a very real way that we can bring that into the secular world. Yeah. Um, may I, may I add to that? Of course. Yeah, yes. Okay. yes. Absolutely. So I think you're absolutely correct. If I were to say it differently than I did earlier to, to say what I actually think in a better way, this is what I would say. Any individual person can live out all of those values without having to enter into religious spaces in most cases, unless you live in specific areas where because of funding reasons, because of polit political reasons, it would be difficult to find that structure outside of uh, a religious institution or religious nonprofit or whatever it may be. So I think nine times out of 10, that is becoming the standard. What is, what is yet to exist. And I think this would have been a better way to say it. If I would have said it this way the first time is we don't have it as a passive social strata. Like mm -hmm. you have to kind of work your ass off to yeah. be able to, and, and you know what you don't have to work your ass off to do? Drive to a church. Because as soon as you show up, you're going to be most likely greeted. Uh, mm -hmm. You're going to see people who know that you're there most likely for the same thing, even if they don't recognize you. Now there's going to be shitty experiences. You feel special. You feel welcomed. Come on in here. Come sit on here. In. We don't We're so glad you. you're here. Are you Jaretha's girl? <laughs> oh, you're not? Well, you look just like her. Come on. Like that happens, but it does not necessarily happen in secular spaces yet. Um, not.
to the extent where it can be an expectation of our social strata, where we know if we got up in the morning and wanted to go somewhere, it would be there. We're just not there yet. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the way I would say it to probably round it out to make it. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean we're not moving in that direction. We most certainly are. Um, we're just not there yet. So mm-hmm. I uh, would it be fair to say that, uh, and I don't want to minimize it, but are you, you identify as a Christian. Are you doing that mainly to try to clean up the brand? Um, I mean, like a, yeah, I, yeah, good, good. well, you know, I, I've met Jews who, who he would say is a cultural Jew. You know what that means, right? You, 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 you just identify that, but you don't really practice anything different than your neighbor or the guy down the street. You, you, you live just like everyone else. And you don't really in, go through the the rituals and stuff. You just, I'm a Jew. I was born a Jew. That's who I am. Um, would your would your identification as a Christian be similar to that, or do you separate yourself a bit more in your practices? And um, like, do you pray to a deity? Um, do you believe that there's some uh, God that is um, out there doing stuff for us or that you are connected with. Mm, yeah, that's good. So as, as for the Christian brand, I don't think I can be good enough to fix it because the brand is fucked, but you're trying. Um, <laughs> and Genevieve um, says you're one of the best. So, yeah. well, so I, I would say, and, and I, I think I've come to the conclusion that this almost comes down to your wiring and you almost don't have any say in it, but I am, I am like, I am compelled. I'm compelled in a supernaturalist, spiritualist direction. I find myself compelled in that direction and how I perceive not the world as a whole. Like I don't look under rocks and find demons. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that there is just um, kind of a sensationalism that I have encountered throughout my life in and outside of religious spaces that have made me feel a certain kind of connection to others. And at this point in time, there is still something about Christian history, Christian practice, Jesus, Paul, that I feel a sense of home in, not because I find them in any ways consistently agreeable, because I don't always, but there is something that is like going back to visit your parents in your hometown for me in Christianity. Mm-hmm. And, and like, so if you ask me if I love Jesus, I would say yes. But I don't know if that's Pavlovian at this point. Like maybe that was just wired in so early that I have no say in the first place. Or I'm experiencing something legitimate or legitimate for me. I don't know those parts. I just know that I have found myself experiencing something if I pray the rosary. Or if mm-hmm. I um, do a Lectio Divina. Or if I enter, uh, because of my work, I've had to enter and, and attend a, a mass like about 10 times this past year. And it did something for me that I did not anticipate because I'm not necessarily a high church person. Mm-hmm. So I would say that I am like, without my consent, I find myself at home in Christianity, even in my frustrations around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if that's something I have control over at this point. What, what I do think is that the title is something that I wrestle letting go of because I don't know that it's, I want to associate with the people that use it. Yeah. But these ancient texts in this ancient world still does something for me. Mm-hmm. So it's a, an experienced base 
feelings-based connection that you're identifying here. Yeah, it's not like I read an argument that I was like, that's compelling, I'm a Christian now. I so never... it's not an intellectual debate for you, it's just something that you feel better identifying with. Yeah, I would say, I, I, if I were to add another word that kind of is between feelings and logic, that's kind of a third kind, I would say it's mystical. Um, if I were to put words to it. Mm -hmm. That's fair. Let's grab this other call real quick, put a comma on that conversation. This is Paul, he, him, saw TikTok and wants to talk about what the, wants to talk about what the origin and purpose of Jonah. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, Paul, you're on, it. you're on Hello, with Andrew. Sir, What's, oh. Hey, Paul, sorry for the long wait. Yeah, we, folks, just, think, we had a lot going no, on here. No, it's all right. It's okay. No, I'm, um, yeah, big fan of the show. Dave and Genevieve, you're, you're my people. Uh, just to say that we're in a different time zone because uh it's now nearly one o'clock in the morning here and i'm normally on a tuesday morning up at well thank you for joining us so i normally listen to your normally listen to your show on the on the, on the way to work but i was checking thank out you. andrew's tiktok so i'm brand new to tiktok because genevieve got, got me onto it um so just so yeah what's look, your question for andrew being on the show thank you man thank yes. you for calling so about um yeah, so to, to your TikToks give me a quite a, a dopamine rush where you're just like, yes, I relate to that and I want to, I just uh, was worthwhile staying up for. So um, your first one about when you kind of learned about the authorship of the Pentateuch and it wasn't just Moses and that you wanted to talk to Christian, it was just an exciting thing and you just wanted to talk about it in kind of that realisation that ah, Christians don't really want to talk about the Bible when it comes to something that's, you know, a bit like grating or whatever on their already beliefs or whatever. And they're just kind of like, go straight then to the, the Jonah one. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to kind of say, hey, I, I want to talk about Jonah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that because um, my daughter goes to a Christian school. And mm. when obviously over the pandemic, um, we're doing some homeschooling. And one of the RE lessons was, was Jonah. And like suddenly had to open up questions about what are the moral lessons from Jonah? And so I was just having these really interesting conversations with my seven-year-old, like, well, who's who's the bad guy in the story? And what do you, what do we think about God here? Um, my brother-in-law is a is a minister, so he he works in the church, and um, he's got loads of books and everything on um, well everything. So I just like dove in on like these Jonah books, like to kind of learn about well, where does this come from? What what what's the actual best case like story for? Like what? What is Jonah there for? Because it just seems so bizarre looking it through our current lens, and all this kind of really heavy theology books and commentaries were all just about life lessons we can learn about not being able to escape God and you know forgiveness and repentance and that type of thing. I'm like, well, that's not what it's there for. So I just wanted to throw it over to Andrew. Like, what's Jonah about? What's Jonah about? That's a good question. <sighs> I love this conversation <laughs> so much okay so um first of all when we look at the bible as a whole it, it's not a book it's a library of libraries like we have all these disconnected stories that were assembled into what we call books and then those books were assembled into like canon and, the, and then multiple canons were put together and we call it the bible right so jonah is one of many prophetic writings it is a later prophetic writing and what's interesting about the prophetic writing is they usually follow a pattern. The pattern is very predictable. Like 
boringly so sometimes where it's just like random dude bros doing something god shows up or an angel of the lord depends um it says be not afraid i have a mission for you involving this people group and then the guy usually does something melodramatic borderline telenovela kind of stuff just like what was me i am not worthy how could i possibly i could never do this and then that's the prompt to show one this is a good guy because he's humble and now God's going to explain everything that's going to happen in the story about what he's supposed to do and how he can do it. After that, uh, God sends him on his way and then he fails. He always fails. He fails many times. Sometimes he fails for years, sometimes decades. And we learn about the struggle of people who are suffering in the stories of his failure. That's the motif. That's how prophetic literature works. I know it doesn't sound fun yet. It's about to get really hilarious. Okay. So, um, then eventually, most often the prophets don't succeed because the job of the prophet is to exist on the edge of the inside of society to correct corruption. That's where we get texts about like, hey, you're abusing the land. You need to stop doing all these quagmire wars. You know, we get all that from the prophets. And then eventually there is a destruction of a people group or a sign of how things will be terrible. And most most scholars would say the reason they're written that way is that most prophetic writings were actually written after the fact to explain what did happen. We just eventually started interpreting them to say, no, this is what's going to happen in the future. That's why Christians and Jews have very different dating on these texts. Okay. Jonah is the Mel Brooks of this whole damn thing. Because like, in hey, other... hey, before you go into that, let people know you've got a master's in historical theology, theology. Yeah. historical theology, yeah. Yeah. just so I, that I people mean... know that you know what the fuck you're talking about here. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not just like guessing. All right. Okay. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, didn't, I don't want no, to make fine. sure people Yeah, yeah. That. No, you're right. I, um, I should have credentialed myself. I apologize. Okay. So Jonah is hilarious because what happens is it actively catches you off guard in the direction the story goes every single time. Uh, we never hear anything about dude bro in the beginning. God just shows up. We don't get this. Oh, what is it? I'm not worthy. I can't do it. We, we get immediately him, him saying nothing to God. God shows up and he is unflappable. Nothing. It's like, Oh, sovereign deity must be a Tuesday. Like he doesn't do a thing with it. And then God says, go to these people. And instead of going, how could I ever do a mission of the Lord or whatever the text usually says, he silently turns around and walks the other direction. And at hype, so instead of the audience hearing this, like, oh, when's he going to talk about his humility? Doesn't say a thing to God, goes the complete opposite direction. And he doesn't just walk the opposite direction to add hyperbole to it. He takes a boat to get away as far as possible. Isn't that right, babe? This is my daughter. Hey, hey. it's a what family show. <laughs> ah. This is Maisie, and she has her tablet. She wants to show you something, and then she'll head on her merry way, right? I, I can't read it. What's it say? Yes, you will head on your merry way, because i got to do this. <laughs> yes, you will, you silly <laughs> no! Yes, i got to no! do this. Hey, wait, here, here's what I need you to do, okay? Wait, can you, can you I, spell love this game? Can I spell love this game? Yeah, I'll do that real quick, and I'm going to tell them about this while I do okay? Hey, I want okay, Maisie loves this game. Got it. Sorry. So, uh, what ends up, so what happened is um, we have Jonah going the complete opposite direction, okay? And when Jonah goes the complete opposite direction, um, God does everything in his power to bring him back. We don't see that with the others. If a prophet ever messes up with God, he messes up for like a decade, right? Isn't that right, kiddo? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but with Jonah, it's complete opposite at all times. Okay, I, I can't, I, I don't know how to do this and talk to you at the same time. No, so why don't you, 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 you can take it to mom. 
Well, don't say anything more because I'm on a live show because that would be very rude. (laughs) She was very sneaky. She waited until her opportunity and then she struck. All right, head on, Gumbles. I love you. Okay. So, um, Jonah, the re- and so what makes Jonah funny is one of the rules of comedy, and that is surprise, doing the unexpected. And Jonah always does what never happens. He doesn't show up and fails. He shows up, says a single sentence, and everyone goes, put on sackcloths, tell the king, this is big news. We got to get right with God. And he's mad about it. Other prophets are depressed for failing for decades. He's mad that the people he hates are on good terms with God. And then when the king finds out, he says, put sackcloth on all the people, including all the animals, which is the equivalent of if the president showed up in your neighborhood, you put a suit on your cat to show like respect. Like that's how crazy it is to do that. So it is it is likely because of how weird Jonah is the entire time that the authors are making a parody for the sake of reinventing the prophetic literature, making it interesting, making it enticing, which also, fun fact, makes the punchline of hatred of the people who used to oppress you that much harder. You ever cry at the end of a comedy and how it's just like a bigger cry than if the whole movie was sad, you know, the only, mm-hmm. the way that like mm-hmm. only Robin Williams could do to us. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like when Jonah hits with this like nationalist prejudice, Oh, these people are now good with you. These people that are the ancestors of our oppressors. I would rather die then see them live that hits so much harder than if the whole thing was depressing. So Jonah is this dramedy. It's this parody comedic hard hitting national prejudice text that is so much cooler than some do getting swallowed by a fish. So yeah, there you go. That answer your question, Paul. Now, Isn't that better than Sunday school? Wait, what? Isn't, isn't that just so much better than Sunday school? So mm-hmm. much better. You know how much kids would listen if they were just like, oh, it's comedy? That's hilarious. Well, it would be if more... I grew up in going to Bible studies and really kind of studying stuff and really wanted to understand, you know, God and meaning, what's the message for this. And it was just always... Especially... Well, did we lose you, Paul? No, he's still there. It was it'd be more helpful if if the people that taught that taught us that these weren't real people then this stuff didn't mm-hmm. really happen but when it's presented as real characters in real time that really lived and that Noah was a real person who got on an ark and and God drowned ever all the other humans and that's taught as something that actually happened and the problem i have with the old testament stories is the new testament writers considered them to be true as well And that Jesus was quoted as saying, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. So we're left to conclude that Jesus, who everybody wants to say was this awesome dude. And, you know, I'm not I'm not religious. I just follow Jesus. That was the stepping stone that I heard when I was deconstructing. A relationship, not a religion. Yeah. Yeah. That that same thing. Um, This Jesus dude that was supposed to be so awesome. Apparently, according to the writers of the New Testament believed that Noah was a real thing. So that's kind of a problem when we're looking at the Old Testament. Yeah, I I, I hear what you're saying. I would not say it that way. Um, (laughs) Well, and not as like some kind of like preservation of a clean faith for me because the whole thing's a fucking mess for me. That's not what I'm saying. But 
Um, what we find, what's difficult about Jesus, um, and not in a good way, just difficult in general, is Jesus emulates theatrically and in mimicry and literally the prophetic styling. And what we find often in the prophetic writings are things that, from best we could tell, were never held beliefs, but rather images to point to an idea. Like, for example, in Amos, we have this verse that makes no sense in English. It's pretty good in Hebrew. makes no sense in English. Says It's basically this. See that bowl of fruit? You're right. The end is near. Makes no sense, right? In Hebrew, the word for the end and the word for um, the bowl or bowl of fruit are almost identical. And so it's a pun that works really well in Hebrew, but doesn't work at all in English. And so they weren't actually saying that bowls of fruit are in any way attached to some kind of idea. And it would actually go beyond into people, right? Like um, the way they talk about the king of Tyre as an archetype for evil. The way that we find um, Sodom being talked about as an archetype for sinfulness. Like Mm -hmm. we, we see this kind of imagery used almost entirely throughout the Bible and I'm not making a case for the Bible. I'm just talking about how to interpret literature, right? That's all I'm doing. I'm making a case for anything. Right. It would make more sense considering how prophetic and styling Jesus was that he was pointing to an allusion of how corrupt the people were in these stories about Noah and how corrupt he's seeing people being today. That would make more sense in his overall prophetic tone when he's talking about the modern day and the uh, under Roman uh, encampment. Just. Yeah, I can, I can see that. But at the same time, according to what. For me, it's hard to get an image. If, if we're going to accept that Jesus was an actual person, which is question number one, um, if we're going to accept that, then we have to try to find a way to define who this person was. And since there's That's no fair. there's no historical records of him to speak of, we have to go by what the gospel writers said and what Paul said. I mean, we're, no. left, we're left with that. So if we're going to construct any kind of imagery of who Jesus is or was, we kind of are, are left with what the Bible says, right? <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Yeah, I mean, by and large, it's definitely the closest thing to a prime. You, know, you, you could arguably say it's not a primary source on Jesus, but it's the closest thing that we would have to a primary source. Right? Yeah, and so if we try to reconstruct who he was and what he represented, um, we kind of have to go by what he said or, or what he allegedly said, according to the Gospels. And so when he says that it's going to be like the days of Noah when I come back, when the coming of the Son of Man, um, he's then building a case that he's going to come back. He's going to he's going to when he when he leaves, he's going to return. And that's part of the basic evangelical message. Right. So. If we don't accept that, I mean, I mean, I, I don't think any any of the three of us would accept the idea that Jesus is going to return and come down from the clouds or wherever he's been hiding, because um, he's certainly been hiding. Um, then, then what are we left with? Was that rhetorical, or do you want me to answer? Um, either. I mean, what do we make of this Jesus character? Oh goodness! Who all? Who 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 is the crux of the whole gospel message and i mean when you identify as christian mm-hmm. you are a little christ right yeah yeah uh, so how do we what do we make of this jesus character and uh, how does he how does he factor into our lives today in 2022 
there's a lot of different ways to start this. So I'll do it like this. Okay. In the most negative way that we could approach Jesus, we unfortunately seem to find ourselves having to deal with him in some kind of way, right? In some kind of cultural phenomenon, we find ourselves dealing with people that either care about Jesus or make use of this name of Jesus or use of this imagery. Hell, you go down the road, you can find like 10 car washes in East Tennessee that are named after something in the Bible. So like we're, we're dealing with this like complete infusion within our nation, within the world in a lot of cases mm-hmm. with this yeah. biblical imagery. And so we're kind of forced to deal with, if not Jesus, this like new or or recent narrative characterization of Jesus. So if we go to these texts where they start, I would suggest one of two ways and how to make something of Jesus. We either start with Paul or we start with Jesus. The reason we start, we should start with Paul, in my opinion, is because we see from Paul the precursor of a lot of small uh, congregational structures that predate, uh, odds are seven of Paul's writings predate the earliest that we could date the gospels yeah, or the gospel of Mark. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's understood. Yeah. So like as a cultural phenomenon, there was some kind of like oral tradition around the stories of Jesus or some kind of, um, some kind of cultural development of a spirituality that was adjacent to second temple Judaism, uh, but not fully within it. That also included to a certain extent, the Gentiles. And so either these writings are meant to make more sense of the narratives of these churches about Jesus. And so what we should take from them are what they thought about Jesus. Um, or there's something tied to some kind of narrative memory of people that didn't necessarily meet him, but were raised in cultures around him, like little pocket cultures. Mm -hmm. So if we start with Paul, I would say that what we're really doing when we read Jesus is we're reading stories about what people wanted their own people to know about this person. Um, And not necessarily about what he literally did, but what he was spiritually about or what that says about what they would be as people because they are part of this culture. So that's, that's a pretty clean, like if we're just making a sociological, that's a pretty clean way to read Jesus. Not necessarily did this happen or did it not? What is this narrative trying to suggest that the personhood of Jesus or person, a personhood attached to godliness is like, Mm -hmm. that's, that's probably the cleanest one. The second one, which isn't as clean, but it's still pretty compelling for a lot of people is that we would read Jesus in light of no other documentation. Start reading the Gospels as the underbelly for how we read Paul. So with uh, The guess there would be that these narrative tools and this narrative um, list of sayings and wisdom sayings around or attributed to Jesus would have had such a cultural development prior to Paul that they could have been preserved and then they are the re they're the way that we need to navigate Paul in light of the gospels instead of gospels in light of Paul. I find that one a lot less compelling um, for a lot of reasons, but I do understand that there's there there's, we're still discovering weird things that could convince me otherwise. But I think what you do is you read Jesus in light of Paul as a lot, as some kind of narrative, so a legitimate person to a certain extent, but to what extent I'm not sure but as a narrative telling us what we should know about a person or what we should know about God in light of a person. That's how I would read it. Yeah, I guess um, 
if 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 you have to deal with if you still want to hold to a narrative of believing in God. Well, I would say even if you don't, because we have to deal with like like let's say mm -hmm. that tomorrow, fifty percent of people have come to the 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 strong conclusion. Uh, and, and we're close, right? I actually don't know what the statistics are, but we're probably close, right? That let's say 50% of the people are in are either like non-Christian, ex-Christian, or in some way in the United States, just not practicing any kind of way. We're still gonna have to deal with these other people. And I don't know how to navigate a world where I don't understand my neighbor. I, I think we have to deal with this religion. Even if we think it's all balderdash. We do. Yeah. That's why Genevieve got involved with this stuff yeah. to begin with. Right, Genevieve? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I did not grow up in a Christian faith. I, I, I grew up with atheist parents in San Francisco. And it was only moving to the Bible Belt and, and understanding that there were so many things that I just didn't understand about my friends and my neighbors. You know, um, I and, and also working in politics and understanding people's political choices, I was like, oh, I cannot, you know, divorce your yeah. worldview and your politics and who you are as a person from the Bible. Gosh, I should probably understand what the fuck is in this book people are making a fuss about. Um, and, yeah. the thing, and the thing is, too, is that, you know, I... Uh, once again, I'll say I go back and forth about how I feel about progressive Christianity because, you know, you are one of the few progressive Christians that I've seen who really does understand that the Bible and Christianity as a whole has been a major tool of oppression and harm in the world. And I think yes. that a lot of, I, I think we, I forget if we've talked about this before, but I always wonder, you know, in terms of like the patriarchy, for example, is it a chicken or the egg with the Bible? You know, are we are we living in this oppressive patriarchal society because, you know, Paul or somebody pretending to be Paul said that women should be subservient or, you know, going back to Genesis, that it was all Eve's fault that any of us are fucked in the first place? Um, or did that structure already exist? And then, you know, these religious texts sort of capitalized on this thing that they already believe and they just put it into a book that we should then venerate or into a library of libraries or et cetera, et cetera, you know. I, I don't think I, we I have just, talked about this and that's that's such a miss because I think we'd love talking about that. I know. I've had this conversation before, but I don't think I've had it with you. So I'm happy we can have it now. It's like, yeah. if I can just, I have such a hard time boiling down what it is specifically that I'd like to talk about, but it's, you know, do, do we really gain something when we continue to promote the Bible as something people should live their lives by when we understand that in many cases we can read it, as I said before, as this, this nuanced story that needs to be picked apart, needs to be understood in historical context, and then can be viewed in a way that makes you a a very loving, kind, wonderful person, which I have seen not just with you, but with many people, mm. even though we understand that that same book put in front of other people who don't do that, who don't give it that nuance, will just read, oh, okay, homosexuality is a sin and women should shut the fuck up and like, this is going to happen. And oh, you think that, you think we came from monkeys and like, fuck you, you're an idiot. I've got, I've got God, I'm going to heaven and you're going to hell and you can, you know, I, I see that all the time and it's coming from the same book. I wonder, is there a way that we can 
should we eventually hope to just throw out the book and keep the things that that serve us? Um, here's what I think. Mm-hmm. I think that first and foremost, prejudice predates religion. Mm-hmm. I think that I, I think the answer for that is actually history of economics and not history of spirituality. Um, any tool to keep economic structures in place. Like if we go back to like the pre-sophists or something like they well, not, not or something exactly them. If we go to the pre-sophists and we, we look at these ancient uh, philosophical individuals who uh, were examining how constitutions need to be written and the history of how rhetoric was developed as a principle, as an art, as a science, um, we can see pretty clearly that most structures of what we would consider ancient society today were developed to keep the rich rich and the poor poor. Um, I think that n- nobody needs the Bible's permission to oppress each other because we were great at it before the Bible was ever written. Now, I do think that there are certain tools that are very dangerous in manipulative hands. Like... I have a problem with fundamentalist and really a lot of different readings of the Bible for the exact same reason I have a problem with assault rifles um, because of how easy it is to harm with it. Mm-hmm. Now, what I will say is that there have, there are wonderful communities and we'll just keep it Abrahamic. Let's talk like, like reform Judaism, for example, and, and perhaps other branches. I've just recently been interacting with a lot of reform Jews and I've learned a lot and I really appreciate them where they interact with the text as going, how do we in our today's time wrestle with what they wrestled with in their time? That kind of reading, I think, is meaningful for any religious text. Any kind of spiritual reading, I think that is something that could be preserved into however long in human history, however long we have. Um, I do think that we need to quickly dismiss a reading of the Bible that relies on my personal intuitions by myself in my room where nobody who is trained can check my prejudices, where I have the Holy spirit who just happens to sound like my dad in my head. Mm-hmm. We need, we need to throw that in a fire like 400 years ago. Mm-hmm. But I agree. And I, I do not want to interrupt you at all, no, but I, I you did just remind me of something as well, because nobody is reading the Bible alone in their room. Just like you sort of just alluded to, it's like, oh, it's, it's so funny that it sounds exactly like what my dad teaches me. But, but we see this in churches. We see this right. in churches going back the last 2000 years is that none of this lives in the vacuum. They're I interpreting it based upon what their church leaders saying. That's what, that's it, right? Yeah. It's, well, it's and their church leaders are interpreted based on their economics of their and their politics yeah. of their world is saying. Yeah. Right. And so I think the thing I get back to, and um, I, I just, I identify as an atheist uh, because I want to destigmatize the word. Hmm. It's got probably the worst stigma of any identification in terms of religion that you can have in this country. You can't mm-hmm. run for public office in most states if you're an atheist, if you're an avowed atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, in when some you states tell, it's illegal, in every state it's impractical. Yeah. And, and, and so when you tell people you're an atheist, they they literally pull back from you as though you're going to try to harvest their organs. And and I've done this. I, I, I've had conversations with people and I, my 
elevator thing is I used to be a Christian and I was a, a pastor on staff at three different churches and now I'm an atheist. What? Their eyes bug out. Um, I, I do that on purpose because words have meanings and atheist has been um, abused. Uh, Christian, the word Christian has meaning. Um, and we've identified the difference between evangelical and fundamentalist and and liberal and um, progressive and all those things. The problem I have with identifying as a Christian, um, it, it, it continues to link you to the brand, if you will, for lack of a better word. Um, and that is a problem, especially in a country where a vast majority of the people think this is a Christian nation mm-hmm. and where Christian nationalism is making a, a resurgence like nothing I've seen in my lifetime. And, and, and it's, it's become a really divisive lightning rod. And so to identify, and Andrew, you're one of the nicest people I've seen in a while. And I, I love, I mean, I trust Genevieve's um, assessment. Um, if she says you're one of her favorite people, that's enough for me. But identifying as a Christian keeps that um, thing, it gives, it gives oxygen to that whole movement hmm. and it and enables them, if you will. That's one of the problems I see with maintaining that identity. And I, I know you're coming at it from a different uh, position, a different viewpoint. And yours, as you identified, is more mystical or spiritual. And and that's I know a lot of people like that. They, you know, my partner Bevan, I just think there's probably something out there, you know, and, and that's fine, you know. Um, I don't happen to share that, but it's it's harmless. Mm-hmm. But to identify as and boy, I've, I'm running us out of time. I'm sorry because I want you to respond to this. We have to sharp. We have a sharp cut off at eight thirty. By the way. Oh. Okay. Um, uh, anyway, that's the issue that I keep having with this. Um, and I know lots of uh, progressive Christians, and they're wonderful people, and and they feel uh, and think a lot like you do. But do you see my point there? And and how would you respond to that? Yeah, no, I see your point. Um, I would say that if I were to be like, just like cold and calculating about it, my strategy around how I wish to live my life is one that increases dignity and reduces suffering. And so I would bounce what I identify as not only off of my convictions, but also off of my strategy. If my strategy is to increase dignity and reduce suffering in a red county surrounded by with, with you know 0.00 Jewish population, 0.00 Sikh population, and a huge Christian gathering. Now, granted, I do share some kind of spiritual origins with most Christian people, but outside of that, mm. identifying alongside them makes me a trusted figure. And, I, and that's not necessarily because I want to manipulate anyone. There, there is, there is no gain in that space in distancing myself from people if I want to rally them together for the sake of making a meaningful mm-hmm. change. Um, there are other spaces, like like if I if I were to pick language for myself, it'd be a lot of words that we have spent time defining. Awesome. And we, spent, we spent some time defining some of them. 
But if I were in maybe a space that is very not Christian, like almost exclusively um, secular or non-Christian, differing in religion, I would probably be less eager to identify myself with being the the people that are not involved in the community because I want to work as one who is part of the community. So I would say that it's not a zero sum in either direction. Mm-hmm. That I, There are spaces where identifying as a Christian is a gain. And I do think there are spaces where identifying as a Christian would be a loss, but I think it'd be a miss to say that there is no gain in a country where I don't know, mm-hmm. 40% of it's blood red. I understand what you're saying. I, I think, um, what what I see that doing, though, like I said, it gives oxygen to them because they see you as one of them now. And they see that the good you're doing is because you're a Christian, is because of the God that you're connected to. And I don't see that that's what's really real with you. I see the good you're doing and the good person you are is because you're a good human. No God needed. And to me, the advancement for us as, as people, as a society, is to start saying that out loud. I'm a good person because I'm a good person, not because I'm connected to some God, and certainly not because I'm connected to the God you happen to believe in, because that, in a, as I said before, it continues to feel like you're enabling them to believe that Christianity is the superior way. When it's just not. Humanity is the superior way. And being good to one another and kind to one another just because we can and we should. Mm-hmm. That's that's just, the, sorry if that sounds a little preachy, but no, um, I, I just see you as such a good human. And my prayer <laughs> is that you would be able to say that I am a good human, not because... I'm a Christian, but because I'm who I am. Here's what I think. Okay. Um, <laughs> my my life blood, how my life functions, how I am paid, how I function in the world is intrinsically tied to people's stories. Not, be, not in what's right or what's wrong, but where they come from. How were they raised? Where did they come from? Did they attend church? Did they not? Uh, when's the first time they saw someone mistreated? Did they feel powerless? Um, what makes them angry? What values do they want to pass on? My, Not only is my rent paid, but my heart is filled off of people's life stories. Mm-hmm. Now, what is very true for you and, and in no way needs to be diminished because it, it, it's what rallies you around what you value is you found a certain toxicity and, and certain, certain and a lot of things that shouldn't be believed in your opinion, right? Um, or perhaps you, out of your convictions around the Christianity that you espouse to so many people in three churches. And so the drive for you is to pass on a legacy and an identity of value tied to being a good human. And that matters to you. Mm-hmm. I, I, my gateway drug to being a better person was Christian theology. Now that doesn't mean that I'm right about the world around me. Right. But that, that is what happened to me. Um, I, and I know of a lot of things now that could have probably done just as good of a job. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not what happened. 
that's not where I come from. Yeah, that's your experience story. and that's your story. And I get that. Yeah. And, and, I, re and so, I respect that. Yeah. And, and, and I didn't say that to say, hey, respect my story. But what I'm saying is I think what connects us as human beings at the end of the day isn't how much we can pronounce in univocality our experiences, but that we can say our experiences while being deeply diverse are connected enough that I know what road we can walk down together. And I'm delighted and excited about that. So um, I think we would have to do a lot of work erasing people's lived experiences that are good, not just that are bad. If we were to say that this is the way we should pronounce it. Mm -hmm. So because like, I do think that there are ways that a lot of people pronounce their world and their experience that makes it sound like, isn't it great that I did the right one, you know? And I, yeah. and I think that like Christians are, you know, notoriously terrible at that. Mm -hmm. My, my hope would be not necessarily the way people pronounce themselves, but rather that we can learn to pronounce ourselves in a way to say, and this is where I am now and where I want to go so that we can walk down that road together, regardless of what we believe. Um, I don't know how to build power and make change in communities without that. Mm -hmm. No, I see what you're saying. Before we, uh, before we got to go real quick, uh, Paul, I think I hung up on you accidentally, but I don't know if you're still there, but thanks for the call, but we are out of time. And um, Genevieve, last word, um, Andrew, I, I hate we're out of time because we could talk about this a lot more. This was fun. Yeah. My, my last word is that uh, we need, it's been a long time since we've done a dual live together. We need to do that. And also, um, if anybody wants to hear you talk more about these things, um, you can plug your pluggables. You have an amazing TikTok and you also have a podcast. So please just, just share yes. that. So what is that, Andrew? Yeah, so um, I'm on a podcast with two other creators, Jagazus and Queen of Heathens on TikTok. Uh, we have a podcast called Unholy Trinity. Um, so take uh, the word Trinity, but make the last T-Y, make it T-E-A, the drink. Um, and I have a TikTok. It's red underscore Sage one, as you can see right here with my name. Um, I also do lives on consist uh, every once in a while. And I'm starting to talk more about how to build power and how to rally around people's stories on those lives, uh, which is something that I care deeply about. Well, let's continue to stay connected. I'm so glad you came on. Kyle Brewer, I saw your super chat. Thank you for that, my friend. Um, and let's, uh, let's, let's keep in touch, Andrew. I really enjoyed having you on. This was, this was a you're pleasure. A, you're a good I, dude. I look forward to getting to know you better. Yeah, this, this you was too. Awesome. Thanks a lot. And that's our show for this week, folks.